Well, by now we should be clear that the theme, the overarching theme of the book of Galatians is that we are saved by grace through faith alone and that we cannot be made right before God through strict obedience to his commands. In fact, this is the point that Paul has been driving home through the book. He'll continue to drive it uh, uh, over and over and over again until the very end of the book of Galatians. In fact, he, he gives us this huge warning, actually, in chapter 3. He tells us, if you are trying to make yourself right and acceptable, uh, accepted by God through the law, then you are ultimately under a curse, he said. And the reason that you're under a curse is because of the demands of the law. The law demands that you be perfect, that, that you don't commit any sin at all. And, of course, none of us would actually seriously say that we've, perfect, that we've kept all of the law. In fact, he would go on to say, and if you've broken any part of the law, then you are actually under the judgment of God. And so he's trying to convince us, hey, don't trust in this law for your salvation. It, it doesn't work. It won't get you to where you want it to be. Instead, you need to come to faith in Christ. If you want to be right and made right unto God, you place your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so what he does is he's, he's preaching this, he's encouraging this, and now halfway through the book, he finally comes to realize that after teaching everything that he's taught, that surely by now some people, some of the Galatians that he was originally writing to, and some of us are finally starting to get it. We're finally, finally understanding what it means to not only be saved by grace through faith, but also to live by grace through faith alone. And so he understands that now people are going to begin to ask questions. Okay, look, if we are saved by grace through faith alone, then what's the point of the law? If we're saved by grace, then, then what are we supposed to do with it? Are, are we supposed to obey it? Are we supposed to study it? Uh, in fact, now that we're saved by grace and not saved by following the law, do we have to follow the law at all? And he understands that these are going to be questions. And let me say, I think they're not only questions for the Galatians. I think they're questions that you and I ask oftentimes. What are we supposed to be doing with this if we're no longer underneath the, the law at all? And so what Paul's going to do is, fortunately, in verses 15 through the end of chapter 3, he's going to explain that uh, in, so, in some great detail. And here's how he does it. He does it by breaking this text up in two ways. First of all, he shows what the law does not do. And then next week, we're going to look at what the law does. So because of the time that we have and because of the intricacies of this text of Scripture, I've got to shorten it a bit. And so we're going to just look at one idea, what the law does not do. And there's two points to this. First of all, God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to Abraham was not changed by the law. That's Paul's point. Now, let's jump in and let's see if we can see this. Look at verse 15. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So normally when I'm preaching, I'll read a text of Scripture, I'll begin to explain it the best that I can, and then I'll come up with some crazy illustration to help clarify what it is that I've been teaching. But during the time that you've been sleeping, during the explanation, right? And so you're just waiting for the illustration. So what Paul does here instead is he actually begins with the illustration, and then he gives us the explanation of that illustration. So uh, here's what he's doing. He's talking about a contract, actually a man-made covenant, or more specifically in the Greek, he's actually talking about a will, the type of will that you and I would write in order to be able to leave things to our children and to their grandchildren, all right? Give them an inheritance. And he says, look, once somebody writes this, and some, once it's written and it's legal and it's ratified, and that person dies, nobody has the right to come to legally and change it. 
You can't add anything to it. You can't make change. You can't wipe parts of it out. Everybody knows that. And, and so let me give you an illustration about his illustration, all right, to make it more clear. Just say for a moment that I put you in my will. You're welcome. And, uh, and you're like, well, I've seen your house. You don't have much. So anyway, and so, so, but here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a delicious package of Mega Stuff Oreo cookies. That's what I left for you. You're welcome. Uh, but at the same time, you know that this is completely hypothetical because you know I'm not giving you no eye cookies, right? There ain't no way I'm giving them. In fact, I, I'm going to eat them before I go. In fact, they're probably going to be the cause of why I go. Amen? And so, so what I'm going to do is, is just say, just for an example, I'm going to leave you in, in my will. I'm going to give you this, this pack of cookies. And so what you decide to do is you go to the lawyer's office or whatever it is. And, and when you go, uh, you show up. And this is what the lawyer says. They say, yes, in the will, we're going to give this to you. However, uh, I don't think you're really deserving of it. Uh, in fact, I don't think this is good for you. And so I've chosen not to give you what they willed to you, right? And what are you going to say? Give me my cookies, right? You can't do this. Or if they turn around and they say something like this, hey, listen, uh, we're going to give you the cookies, but you have to do 500 jumping jacks before you do it. Uh, that's conditional. They're adding to it before you get it. You know that this is baloney. This is what Paul is saying now. What Paul is doing, that same illustration, he's trying to bring back and explain the difference between the covenant that God had given Abraham and the covenant that God had given Moses. What he's suggesting is God gave a promise and inheritance to Moses or to, to Abraham. Many years later, uh, Moses comes on the scene, 430 years later, and he gives a, a different command. He goes, but this other command doesn't change the first promise of God. So let me, let me break that down just a little bit more for you. Let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant just for a moment. And everyone's like, oh, dear Lord. Yes, it's his covenant. So let's go over it just for a moment. I'm not going to go into great, great detail because uh, Ryan already did that two weeks ago. So let me just draw out uh, two things ab about this specifically. Number one, let's talk about what the promise was to Abraham. Abraham promised him three things, land, a people, and a blessing. The blessing was that all the world would be blessed through whom? Through Abraham. So that was what he promised. The second thing we need to know is that this was an unconditional promise. You understand that, right? Unconditional means God was going to give it to him, and it, didn't, it wasn't dependent upon what Abraham was going to do or what he wasn't going to do. It's much like a will. I'm going to leave this, and it doesn't matter if they love me, don't love me. This is my will for them. I'm giving this thing to them. So that's an unconditional covenant or unconditional promise. It's a little bit like when we adopted our daughter. Uh, we went before the judge, and uh, Judge Foster, and Judge Foster said, here, sign these papers. Now I want you to raise your right hand. And he says, now, here's what I ultimately want you to do. He goes, I want you to swear that you're going to take care of this little girl as she is your own, as though you birthed this child, as though she's from your own bodies, that, that, that you're going to love her and care for her and feed her, and you're going to do all these things for her for the rest of the days of your life and the, for the rest of the days of her life. Do you solemnly swear to do that? Now, the reason he's doing that is because he's telling us, right now, bro, this is the, this is the point of no return. There's no givesies, backsies. There's no exchanges. You can't sit there and go, oh, yeah, we didn't know this about this child. Uh, we want to give her back. He goes, no, you make a solemn promise, and it is, it is, it is you are going to do it. You're going to care for her and love her and give to her independently of what happens from this point on. Does that make sense? 
And so here's what he's doing. This is the kind of promise that he gives. Now, how does Moses know? How do you, or excuse me, Abraham know? How do we know that this promise was unconditional? Well, uh, Abraham wanted to know the exact same thing. And so, in fact, in Genesis chapter 15, this is after Genesis chapter 12, here's what he asked God. He says, how can I know that I will gain the possessions that you've ultimately promised me? And so this is like a little kid almost, right? I'm not saying that about Abraham, but your child does that. You say, hey, clean your room. I'll give you some ice cream. You promise? Yes. Cross your heart? Yes. Cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. No, I'm not doing that. Just do it before you get a spanking, right? That's, what, that's where you do I'll give you ice cream. You just got to do it. And so what they're doing is they're yearning for some type of security that your promise is true. And so what God does is he takes his promise and to be able to demonstrate that it's going to be fully true, he, he cloaks it with this covenant promise. Uh, we actually read about this. Uh, what Abraham does in Genesis 15 is he commands Abraham to get a goat, a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And he says, and what I want you to do is I want you to cut them in half, lay them apart, face opposite of each other. Now, Abraham would have immediately known in his context what this was all about. This is how they would make a human co- or a man contract, a, a, a human covenant with one another. So if you wanted to make a promise and go into business with somebody, you would say, hey, look, I'll do this if you promise to do this. And they would seal that promise with a covenant by taking an animal, splitting them in two. I know it's gross, but it's what they did. And so what they, now we shake hands. And so what they would do is they would walk through that animal uh, embraced with one another, having declared what their promise was. And here was the whole picture. If I don't keep, hold, and do what it is that I'm promising to you, then may what happened to this animal happen to me. My, my, my very life be taken. That's how sincere I am in this. Now, here's what happens with, with his covenant. When Abraham goes to make this covenant with God, he falls asleep. He goes into this deep sleep. And he begins to dream. And what he sees within the dream is he sees this smoking pot and this fiery torch. And it, is, it goes alone through this, these broken animals. And so what's the point of this? Well, these two things represent God. What God is doing is, hey, I promise to give you these things, but it's independent on what you do. In fact, you're not even taking a part in the covenant. I'm going to give you a promise, but it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on me. I'm the one that's making the covenant oath. I'm the one that it ultimately depends on. So guess what? If I don't do it, may I cease to be God. May I be ripped in two like these animals. That's the promise that he makes to Abraham. And so it's independent of him. And this seems to be clear. From, 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 from those texts, from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. However, the Jewish people, this was a little bit fuzzy. And what made it fuzzy and confusing was that 430 years later, God comes and makes a covenant with, with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And in those two chapters, it's where, it's where uh, at Mount Sinai, David, or, 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 um, uh, God gives them what? Gives them the Ten Commandments. Now, the essence of that covenant can be whittled down to one verse. Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. Here's what it says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the world is mine. Here's the general promise. Hey, you obey, I'll bless you. You disobey, I'll curse you. Do you get it? Do you see the difference now between those two covenants? Here's what the confusion is. The first one, completely independent about what you do or don't. The second one is dependent upon what you do and don't. Here's the problem for the Jews. What the Jewish people came to understand was this, is that 
is that God came, God's promised blessing through Abraham was given to them. However, when he gave the covenant to Moses, it showed that the only one way to obtain the blessings of God, that is salvation, was determined based on whether they would be obedient or not. Yes, God has all these blessings for us, Abrahamic covenant. How do we get it? The only way for us to be able to get it is if we obey critically and fully. And we understand, again, that's not what God's promise is. He says, look, I gave you another covenant, but the law that I've given you, the covenant that I gave you, the promise that I gave you, is not dependent on anything else. That is firm. That is done. You don't have to work for it. There's nothing to add to it. This is what I will do. Here it is. Your salvation will be an absolute, full, and complete work by me. You will have nothing to do with earning your own right standing before me. That's his point. And so that's what he brings, and so that's what we understand. Now, the problem with it is they're struggling. And so Paul just basically gives the illustration, says, hey, this thing's been ratified. You can't come back and ultimately change it. Now, here's the second point. God's promise to Abraham was not made to them, but would be secured for them. Now, look at verse 16. Paul wrote, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. All right, it's very wordy, but so let me, let me try to explain. In Genesis chapter 12, we know that God gave Abraham this covenant. And in this covenant, he uses this word offspring. Let me read you the verse. He says, to your offspring, I will give the land. So according to Paul, the promise that God had made Abraham included Abraham and one of his offsprings. It was not to his offsprings. This is, this is the confusion for you and for them. Let me clarify. What he was saying is, he goes, guys, you misinterpreted the promise of God to Abraham. You thought you were the offsprings. You're not the offsprings. That's not who God made the promise to. He made a promise that he would give you all of these blessings of salvation, and that would go through Abraham in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, it would go through his one offspring and be given to his offspring, and that one offspring, according to Paul, is who? Jesus Christ. Do you see that? So when, when this begins to, now begins to unpack, now we begin to see the significance. Oh, yeah, Abraham is going to get a land physically, yes. He's going to get a people. He's going to have a child, and they're going to have children. Uh, and then in, in a way, the whole world is going to be blessed through him. But where is the greatest promise fulfilled in, Abraham or Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ. We understand that there is a greater fulfillment of this promise, not merely physically, but spiritually. What would happen? That last promise through him, all of the world would be blessed. Do you see this? He's talking about salvation would come through Christ. So what he's arguing here is he says, the promise was never to you. It was directed to Abraham, and it was directed to his offspring, Jesus Christ. And then this is, this is what we find. When we read this through the word of God, Paul is teaching here that tr the truth found throughout the word of God, that Jesus is the one true uh, uh, beneficiary of all of God's promises. Every blessing that God wants to give the world and to you and to me has already been given to Jesus. Thus, every blessing we seek, every good thing in the world is to be found in Christ. Later, Paul will say this. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, he will say, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Here's the point. You guys are trying to cling to a promise that was never your promise. It wasn't even made to you. 
It was made to somebody named Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And you think that you can somehow earn your way into this blessing, but it wasn't your blessing to be able to earn. You cannot earn this blessing because the blessing was never given to you. However, it will be earned on your behalf. This one Jesus Christ will earn this blessing. So if you want the blessings of God, you're not going to receive them by your many good doings. The way you're going to receive them is by placing your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's his point. That's his point. Can't be found uh, apart from it. And, and so not only is it, is Jesus was not only the beneficiary of this promise, that's who God made it, but also it was the one who would secure the promise, not the Jewish people. How do we know that Christ would secure this? Well, we're using the words again, that word uh, that he ends up using when he, when he begins to talk about uh, his offspring. We see it in Genesis chapter 12. Now, we have to move back even further to Genesis. You're doing such a great job, by the way. And you're like, no, I'm sleeping. I'm just still looking at you. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Let's use this word offspring and let's follow it. We see it in Galatians. We see it in Genesis 12. And now let's move all the way back literally to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. How do we understand it? After the fall, after Adam and Eve fall, the curse comes on the whole world, all people what ends up happening? God gives the curse and what that's going to look like on everyone who is under Adam, but then he says a word of hope. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he gives what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first mentioning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the hope. He says there, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Do you see that? Her offspring, singular. Uh, then notice what he says. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What are you saying is this? That promise of blessing is not yours. It was never given to you, even though you're trying to get it, claim it for yourself, and earn it for yourself. First of all, it's not your blessing. You can't get it directly, and you certainly can't do it through your good works. But it has been given to another one, the person of Jesus Christ, who through his work, it will be made possible for you to be able to benefit and to be able to receive those blessings. How is he going to do it? The offspring has got to go to the cross. The offspring is going to live a perfect life, which you and I could not live, and he's going to die on a cross so that the wrath of God, which is meant towards sinners, is going to be satisfied in him, removing the curse, allowing you and I to be adopted into the family of God to be able to receive all the many blessings of Jesus Christ that were first given to him. That's the point of the text. And so he sits there, and the Galatians are confused, and hopefully he's, he's clearing this up. Then Paul will write this. He says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, will no, longer, it no longer comes by promise. He just simply, he's just simply saying here, If you receive the free gift of eternal life, if, if God's plan is to give you the free gift of eternal life, then how could you ever earn it if it's a gift? If it's a gift, you can't earn it. That's not gift. Gift and working for something, earning and giving, they, they don't go together. Uh, then the final thing he says, in, instead he says, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise, securing them that the reason that he gave this to you, he says, is because he promised it to Abraham. That's where salvation comes. Now let me read the verse one more time. Okay, look, that, but look down at it. Wake up just for a moment. Or if you're sleeping deep, just stay there. All right, here we go. Verse 15, notice this. Follow along. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Amen? Moses 
commandment cannot change now the promise that God had originally made to Abraham. Then he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You guys are trying to claim a promise that was never given to you. It was given to Christ. If you want the promises of eternal life, you must go through him because only Him, he is able to earn it. Now, continue. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, four points of application. And everyone said, praise Jesus. All right, here they are. Four points of application. First of all, a word for those who are here trying to clean themselves up. There are some of you who have come today and your life has been a wreck and there's been some great difficulties and there's been some great hardships and maybe financially you're struggling. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you're struggling with some kind of dependency on alcohol or something else and and you've kind of come to the bottom of yourself and you're beginning to realize, man, this can't be what life is all about. And then you begin to maybe think, you know, I know that there is this God somewhere and, 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 and I just need God in my life. Because you believe in this general concept of God, but your thought of God is, well, maybe if I go to church or maybe if I do some good things and I kind of clean up my act, then maybe God will be accepting to me. And then you came here thinking that you were going to accomplish that, but yet the whole message is telling you you can't do that. God's plan for you is never to come to church and be a good church person and be able to do things and, and give money and, and obey and to do all these different types of things and be a really good wife and really good mom. He's, it was never in order for you to become right to him. He knew you could never do it and never accomplish it, not to the level of righteousness that the law demands. So what he said is way before in the beginning when men first blew it, he sat there and he says, I'm going to make a way for you and I'm going to make a way for me. And the way is not through your righteousness, but through the goodness of Jesus Christ. Number two, the wor- there's a word for those who dismiss theology. See, there are some who sit there and go, you know what, all this Bible teaching and all of this like systematic theology stuff, and you guys even have a department in your church that's about theology where you're just systematically going through the scriptures. You know, bro, I don't need that. All I need is the Holy Spirit. I'll take the Holy Spirit. You take doctrine and theology. That's the attitude of the environment in which we live. Let me just say something about that. One thing that I would say about that is, is you cannot separate doctrine apart from the Holy Spirit, and you cannot just have the Holy Spirit without doctrine. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who led men to write the very words of God which are written here. And it is through the word of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which means the Holy Spirit, when you hear the word of God, then moves in you to drive the truth of this word in your heart, transforming you, bringing you salvation, and making you more like Jesus Christ. And we know that the Holy Spirit is all about it. Why? Because the whole book from beginning to end is about Christ. And Jesus' the Holy Spirit's primary responsibility is to do what? Draw attention to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you have theology, you will have the Holy Spirit. They are combined. So oftentimes it's interesting because you sit back and go, hey, we don't really need theology. But isn't it interesting that Paul, who clearly knows something about the Holy Spirit, when he is correcting this false understanding, what does he do? Does he say, let's sing one more praise song. Let's just sing one more time. We don't need theology. What does he do? He goes through systematic theology 
unpacking covenant relationships and covenant promises of God. Why? Because it's in their false thinking, not their false singing, that they are ultimately doing what? They are ultimately in their sins and, 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 and under the judgment of God. So he has to correct them. How does he bring them back? Not by a new song, and I'm not against new songs. Not against new, you're like, he's against new songs. I'm not against new songs. It's wonderful. But what I'm saying is, the song, apart from doctrine and theology, does us no good unless it is saturated with that same theology. And so we understand that. Number three, a word for those with a low view of the Old Testament. We don't need that Old Testament. We need the new stuff, man. We don't need all that. And even, even you see pastors all the time that are almost like apologetic and believers. We're like, yeah, we kind of apologize for that. But, you know, that was the God of the Old Testament. Now we have the God of the New Testament. Again, you need to get back to theology. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Now, let's, 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 let's completely understand. The Old Testament is tough. Why? A lot of law, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of judgment of God. Why is God doing that? He wants to show our need for the Savior. He wants to show our need for all of this. But did you notice something beautiful about it? In the midst of all the carnage, in the midst of all the sin, in the midst of all the judgment, in the midst of all of this, there is this scarlet thread that goes from beginning to end, which shows and demonstrates the grace of God because it keeps talking about the person of Jesus Christ all the way through, even from the very beginning. So in the midst of all that, it's telling us there's one answer, there's one answer, there's one answer. His name is Jesus and his completed work on the cross. And number four, a word for those who have reverted back to living under the law. See, you don't have to be an unbeliever to live by the law. Christians do it all the time. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They understand that they can't make themselves right. That's why they've called out for mercy to God. But what happens in your life and my life is all of a sudden the gospel begins to fade in the background when you and I are trying to seek righteousness and be righteous and live righteous lives. And all of a sudden we're looking at those Ten Commandments trying to live that way. And all of a sudden we find ourselves failing over and over and again. And then we begin to doubt our right standing before God. We become depressed. We feel like we're failing in everything that we ultimately do. And the joy of our salvation is gone. So what God says is go back to the gospel. Go back to my original plan. My plan for you was never to have right standing before me by your own righteousness and by following the law. And guess what? Now that you're born again, the plan still hasn't changed. You are still right before me because you repented of your sin, placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, whenever that was. And so this is the beauty of this text this morning. So let me just ask you this. Are you living by grace? And now we're going to look at the law next week. We're going to talk more about that because we, we're, not, we're, we're not antinomialists where we sit there and go, you don't need the law, live however you want to. Oh, no, not at all. But what we do is we know there's a difference about living and, and being alive unto God by grace and not by the law. And then because we have become alive, now we are seeking to live a life under God, which the Ten Commandments helps us with and shows us what that looks like. Let's pray.